theme for this summer, Courageous Living, Following Jesus in Challenging Times, I wanted to take and lift from a story about a guy named Gideon out of Judges chapter 7. But before I get into the reading of Judges chapter 7, it's in your program that you got today, your handout, I uh, want to tell you maybe a little history, a little story about this guy himself. Here he was, the Bible says that the history of Israel would be they would sin, which sin is when we hurt God or we, uh, our relationship with God becomes foggy, becomes disjointed, it becomes uh, where we're not pleasing God. It's not that he gets mad at us, it's just that we're going a route that isn't the best for it, it doesn't benefit us the best. And so they would, they would end up in sin and then they would go into suffering, they would cry out and God would send a deliverer. So in Judges chapter 6, in the midst of it, they said that they would hide in the caves and the dens to hide away from the Midianites. And so as time went on and they were crying out, God then was looking for a guy to pick, a person to pick, to be the leader. Here we see about midway in chapter 6 where he uh, goes to Gideon and he sends an angel. When I was a kid growing up, when I was about 5 or 6, I always wanted to see an angel. And so I'm laying in bed looking up at the ceilings with my hands crossed like this, and I said, God, the lights were on, God, I'd really love to see an angel. And as time went by, my mom came through and flipped off the light, and it got dark in there. I said, God, cancel that order. I don't want to see an angel. You know, we think we want to see them. Here's Gideon, mind his own business. The Bible says thrashing wheat by the rind press, or squeezing out this wheat, trying to make some food hiding from the people that were trying to take him down, and he catches himself uh, hearing a voice. You ever hear voices? You know, sometimes we hear voices and we talk back, but this guy heard this voice and said, Gideon, he turned around and looked, there's this angel. You're a mighty man of valor. You're, you're a great guy. Uh, God wants to use you to help Israel get back on track. They're a little foggy right now. They've got a hurt relationship with me, so I want to use you to help them get back on track. And so as time went on, they then started to, he started to listen a little closer. And uh, he really didn't pick God, but God picked him. And so as he was waiting, as he was going through life, as he was walking through life, he then started to take steps to see what God would do in his life. When I was a youngster, we would go to the schoolyard. Remember when you go to the schoolyard and you pick sides and you try to figure out who the captain's going to be, and invariably it'd be two guys. One guy owned the bat, and the other guy owned the ball, and they each had a glove they owned, so they were the captains. And so we would come, and uh, I would always want to get picked. I was just kind of a short, curly-headed guy. Curly, curly hair means you really have a great future, so hold on to it <laughs> as much as you can. And so I would be jumping up and down saying, pick me, pick me and they would never pick me. They would always put me as a backstop, the guy that would go after the ball, the guy would, because I couldn't run that fast at first base. I mean, when you're running, you're just staying in one place. It's not a whole lot of fun just watching a guy, okay, you can move now. And so I never really got picked, except for there was this one game called, uh, I think it was like American Eagle, where you would have a guy that would hang onto the tree, and you'd pick these girls and guys, and they'd hang on each other's waist, and the other team would have their 10 guys or gals, and they, you'd say, come on, and they'd try to bust through the line. And where if they break the line, then the line would get shorter than whoever would win. Well, guess who was always the anchor guy on the tree? They picked me then <laughs> when it's something they wanted. Well, Gideon was this kind of guy. He really didn't want to get picked. He kind of wanted to be left alone. He wanted to be in his own neighborhood, the neighborhood I live in. I 
pull up the house, I punch a button, the garage door opens, I go in, close it behind me, I have a privacy fence around me, I can sit in my backyard and never be bothered by anybody. I can talk to my little dog, trim the plants, water the ferns, and I don't have to speak to anybody but my own family. That's what Gideon wanted, but God had something greater in mind. Now we pick up the story in Judges chapter 7. You'll see there in your program. In Judges chapter 7, the story begins to uh, unfold where he sees that there is three challenges. The first challenge is, is out of verse 2 and 3. The comfort of our fears. The confrontation or to confront our own fears. What are the fears you may have? With these guys getting and getting together, calls them together. History says that the other uh, army was 135,000. He had 32,000. And as he got them all together, he didn't think it was too bad odds. When I was growing up, I had two older brothers. I had one brother, really, who was seven years older than me, Charles. When everybody would pick on me, he would settle the score. I can remember as a kid, I got hit one time walking home from school, junior high. This senior high guy hit me, and my brother found out, but he evened the score. So those are the kind of guys you want on your side that'll back you up. You know, you want some backup every once in a while. And so Gideon here, it says, and the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you if I will, uh, I will let all of you fight against the Midianites. The Israelites will boast and say it was because of them that saved their own lives, not me. Verse 3 says, and therefore he said, whoever's timid and afraid, tell him to go home. And he watched, as it says there in verse 3, that... 32, out of the 32,000, 22,000 took off and left and just found a place to hide. They just wanted to go back home to mommy. They wanted to get out of there. And so they ended up back home, and what happens is, now here Gideon is with this 22,000 gone. He has 10,000 left, and there's a real confrontation of his fears. It was a real coming to, and saying, man, I am really afraid. You see, we get afraid of the unknown. We get afraid of things that I catch myself. I get afraid because I anticipate something that's going to happen that is far uh, more intense than I planned. It's kind of a panic or a pain or something that really is something I didn't want in my life. It grips you. It really gets you to where, as I was sharing, you want to run, but your feet just are moving, but they're not going anywhere. It's fear that grips your throat. It's fear that things are out of control. It's a fear that we say, and then all of a sudden we hear the voice of the Lord tell us, trust me. Lord, if I trust you, then I don't call the shot. Trust me. See, it's a confrontation during courageous times that we trust the Lord. It becomes something where we start to say, God, I'm going to trust you, but I'm just a little hesitant in this area because I don't know if you're going to show up because look who's left with me. My big brother is gone. There's nobody here to settle the score. They're going to beat me up. We get that fear, and it grips us. I have uh, some fears. Let's be transparent with you. Fears that remind me, fears that challenge me. Some fears I have uh, uh, from past. I mean, I have a fear of needles. When I go get a, give a blood test or give blood, I am scared to death. I'll say, can I have your best poker, your best person? I forget what they call those people, but can I have your best one? 
And they kind of afraid of needles. I'm afraid. I found out in 1992 I hurt my back, and so they wanted to put me in an MRI casket, I mean a machine. <laughs> and they put me on the little gurney and said, cross your arms like this. As they tried to get me in, it would hit my shoulders. So I tried to scrunch up. There's only so much scrunching you could do with this body. I mean, that's as far as you can go. The same it is with your body. And so it became a thing of trying to get in there. Then it got here about right here on me, and I flipped out. I said, ah, mom! No, I didn't go that bad, but I started breaking out in sweat. Found out that I was claustrophobic. I mean, phone booths are not something I like. Thank God for cell phones where you can get out in the, out in the open and talk. And as, uh, as life goes on, I always guard myself against claustrophobic times or being stuck in corners or being stuck, I mean, it's just, it just gets to me. And the joking part of it really helps me get by it sometimes. But I'll never forget a place I was at for the first time in my life two weeks ago. I was at a place called Parker, Colorado. Parker, Colorado, south of Denver. Beautiful country, mountains. I was asked to come there and do a wedding. Somebody used to go to our church, attend our church there in the St. Louis area, the Illinois side, moved to Denver, and so when they got married, they, they moved away. They got transferred five years ago, and so they ended up there in Parker, Colorado, and asked me to come do the wedding. So Pam and I went to do this wedding. That's my wife, Pam. So we got there, beautiful, great wedding, Saturday afternoon, uh, somewhere around 4.30, we have the wedding. We go through the whole process, then they start breaking it down for people to have the reception. So they're setting up the reception, and Pam, I get a call uh, from our daughter, I hand it to Pam, and she talks to our daughter, because then we have our grandson on there. She's talking to her grandson on the phone. He's 13 months old. They, I just didn't have enough time to show you my 45-minute presentation of the best-looking kid in town. In <laughs> fact, I did send a, a letter to Ohio State saying he's able to walk now, we'll go ahead, but anyway. He, uh, so I left her with the phone, and I had to, something was happening within me, right in my stomach. I had to go potty. And so I was looking. I'm over 50, so you got to find it a little quicker than I used to when I was 25, you know. And so I had to go potty. It's a natural thing that takes place. And so I asked around, where's the bathrooms at? And across the parking lot was a swimming pool with a, a big build, with, a, with a building in front of it with two doors. It was the male and female. So I, I kind of skirted across there, saw the, the male. And just as I went in, there was a guy sitting over on the curb waiting for somebody to come pick him up. I talked to him for just a minute. And I, I said to him, hey, I got to use the bathroom. He was sitting there waiting for his mom or somebody to come pick him up. He was a college student, had a job for the summer at the swimming pool. The swimming pool had already closed. He was the only person there besides these people across the parking lot over there. So I went into the bathroom, locked the door. I mean, I don't want anybody to walk in. I might be claustrophobic, but I don't want anybody to walk in on me. So I locked the door. When I finished doing what I was doing, washed my hands like a good boy, went over to open the door, and it was locked. Locked. Now, there was a toilet in the sink. Here's the door. It's metal with a, with a deadbolt that goes about 50 yards into the building. Here's the back wall. My feet would just barely get to that door, and I thought to myself, well, I'm going to call Pam. I reached back. My phone was gone because I was going to call 911. I'm stuck in the toilet. I mean, at the toilet. But it, no, I didn't have the phone. So I hit the door with my forearm. I, 20 years ago, it wasn't that big a deal, but not it hurts a little bit. 
So then I thought if I can get on this wall and put my foot against it and push, once again, the deadbolt was really into the wall. I pushed and pushed and nothing was happening. I was confronted with a fear that I was not going anywhere. I could reach up and touch the ceiling. It was this hard concrete. It was a concrete vault I was in. <laughs> it's what they put caskets in before they put them in the ground. I will never forget Parker, Colorado. So I'm banging on the door, hoping the young man that was out there could hear me. He didn't hear me. I'm banging, I'm banging, and now it becomes real serious. Now, what seemed to take 30 minutes or so really got egged down to about a minute, 90 seconds, and I started to panic. I started to shake. He said, oh, man, you're a big guy. You should handle everything. That's what happens to us, is that when we're confronted by fear, we think that we're the one that's supposed to handle it all the time, and the Lord really wants to help us out. He really want to, wants to rescue us. And so I got, into, got on the side of the wall, and I put my hand, head in my hands like this, and I was leaning against the wall trying to think, what can I do? Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And sweat running down my face. My, my shirt was covered with sweat. And I'm thinking, what can I do? And I look through my fingers. There. I'm not a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> but I figured it out. About 120 seconds into this, there was a box by the lock that said, push this red button to unlock. <laughs> Thank God for the red button. This is what happened. I went over to the button. I pushed it. The door went click. I thought. I opened the door, sunlight came in from Parker, Colorado, and I promise you, I opened the door and I said, victory, victory. I knew that kid thought, man, he really relieved himself in there. <laughs> they told, if they heard it across the parking lot, they're saying, where did you get this minister, you see? But we're confronted by and they're designed and sometimes we go through things and we think that God has forgotten us. He doesn't. He sees us with Gideon. It was by the wine press. He's seen their hearts that they were afraid. He wanted to help them during their fear. But you can't keep walking away from God when you're confronted with fear. Walk to him. He really does want to help us. He's really all about embracing us. He's all about putting his arms around us and helping us through those times that are painful, through those times that are hurtful, through those times that are unpredictable and uncontrollable. Through those times, number two, the second thing that happens is that we need to retain our focus. When we go through these sweaty times, sweating bullets, as they say, we're clammy. I don't know if you've been there. Your focus gets a little foggy. It gets a little bit off kilter. So here's what happens. God has, you know, what God does things is really very interesting because in, in verse 4 of chapter 7, he says, but then he told Gideon, you still have too many. Too many? Too many? He says, yeah, I want you to take them down to the brook and uh, because I'm going to determine who goes with you and who will not go with you. He says, the ones that get down like a man and pick up the water and drink it with their hands, I want you to set them on one side, but the ones who get down on their hands, on their knees and feet, 
knees and hands and start licking like a dog, not paying attention to what's going on. I want you to set him on the other. So he watches. 9,700 people got set over here. 300 left. The point of whether you get down and lap it like a dog or whether you bring it up with your hands is that are you focused? Are you paying attention to what's going on? You see, we all go through life crisis. We will have our agenda set out and our Christian walk and our journey. Maybe this is the first time you've been here to this church, or maybe you've come for a long time. Maybe you've taken maybe a break from church and you're back. Or maybe you're trying to figure it all out. You're walking by, you see Cornerstone, you want to come see. What, what, what is all these people funneling into that door? Go, what are they doing? A, a, just a flow of people coming out, a flow of people coming in. What's taking place there? And you're, you realize, I, I got some fears I need to deal with. And I need, to be, I need to really retain some focus because I'm losing focus on life. I started out with school and maybe got out of focus. I really felt like the Lord wanted me to get involved in school or church or in community. And, and all of a sudden I got out of kilters because of life. Sometimes our faith crisis comes. A faith crisis comes where we're growing in the Lord and he's trying to make us Christ-centered. And all of a sudden our life is shook up. Things just seem to go disarray. And they just get thrown all apart. And you see, the, the challenge for us is when, when focus is about the ability to concentrate over an extended period of time. So even if it doesn't happen today, God has all of our tomorrows. He's working our, our, all our tomorrows today. There's destiny meetings that take place in life. It doesn't happen by chance. Here in the story with Gideon, he said... He just watched them as they eliminated themselves. You see, God, what God planned for all 32,000, only 300 would enjoy and encourage its living. But there was this real challenge of maybe it's, your, maybe it's your finances. Maybe you're doing all you can do. You sign up for temp. You sign up for this job. You try here. You try there. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something that's got a hold of you and gripping you in your life, and you just wonder what will happen next. God has an answer. We get out of focus because we get addicted to things that seem to overpower us, and it's very real. All joking aside, all laughter aside, it's something that just really bogs us down. Or maybe you're living a double life. Maybe you have a computer life, and it just haunts you. Or maybe you have a past life. Or maybe you have a double life going on now. God, by his grace, has really brought you to this place today to say, let's get back in focus. Well, how do you get back in focus? I got this stuff, this thing's weighing me down, and they're pulling at me, pulling at me. How do you get back in focus? 1 Peter 3, uh, 5, 7 says this. Casting all your care upon him, giving it to God, for what? He cares for us. He cares for me. He really cares. Some years ago, oh, some 25 now, I was raised in Cleveland, Ohio. My wife was raised in Walker, Louisiana, which is a little town outside of Baton Rouge. And it's really into the sportsman paradise you'll see on their plates in Louisiana. And uh, my grandfather-in-law, Pawpaw, we called him, he uh, wanted to take me fishing. He's a brave soul to want to take a guy. He's in his mid-30s, take him fishing for probably about the first time of his life and trust him with a fishing pole, swinging that thing around while he's sitting in the boat. Uh, in fact, one time I even hooked him in the, in the ear when I was going to go into a... And, uh, but he's a tough guy. So here we are. He's teaching me how to fish. He said, cast it over there, son. We're going down to buy you. He stops. He said, cast it over there, son. So I cast it over there. Nothing happens. 
the old guy, same bait, same kind of rod, cast it over there, a few seconds, boom, big fish in the boat. And he says, son, this is going to be in the frying pan when we get home. I thought, man, I don't think I'm going to eat it, but that's really great. <laughs> we go down to buy you a little bit more, cast it over there, cast it over there, nothing happens. He does it, boom, another one right there in the boat. Man, he's got these big fish, put them, in the, put them on a little hook. Little fish just waiting to go home, being a frying. Hey, frying pan buddies, two of them right here. And so we're going to go down to buy you a little bit longer. So we go down to buy you a little bit longer, and he stops and he says, Cast it over there. So I cast it over there, and I'm thinking to myself, This old man is not going to beat me fishing. I mean, he's only been doing it for 70 years. And so I said, I, I, I'm going to beat him. So I get over there, and I'm waiting for the tip of that, like anglers do, the tip of the rod to kind of jiggle a little bit, and I'm pulling just a little bit, and it jiggled. And, and, it, and I went, bam, and I pulled it back. And he's just in the front of the boat. I knew he knew what was going on. But I'm pulling, and then all of a sudden I start reeling, and the front of that pole starts to go down like this. I said, man, I'm pulling in Moby Dick. <laughs> Call Momo. We got to get frying pans. We need a big grill out there because I'm bringing it home. So I'm, I'm reeling, pulling, reeling, pulling. And he looks, and he says to me, son, what are you doing? I said, Papa, I'm trying to bring him in. He said, son, you're, you're hung. You got that hook hung. I said, are you sure? And so now I'm faking it. I'm holding it down. Because I didn't want my pride for this guy to see, this old guy who I respected, that I couldn't get this done. I just couldn't do it. And so he said, son, he handed me a knife. He said, cut the line. I said, I don't want to cut the line. I'm enjoying just trying to see if I can pull it in. He said, son, cut the line. He said, you're going to pull in some old boot, some stick, some, something down there that we don't want in the frying pan. So I cut the line. Here you are this morning. There's things you've been too proud to admit. You just keep pulling on it, pulling on it, reading it in, working on your own strength, your own juice. And the whole time, the Holy Spirit's just saying, cut the line, cast it on me. Cast it on me. Give it to me. I'll take care of it. Just cast it on me. I'll take care of it. And the whole time we're pulling, we're yanking, and we even fake our way through life. We fake our way to where we smile, we're happy, and we're really not that happy because we got a position at work or at church or in a community where we got to be happy when we get there. And the whole side, on the inside, you got this tug of war going on. And the Holy Spirit today brought you to this place just to say, cut the line. Cast your care upon him. Stop letting your pride control you. Here's what it comes down to, admitting it. You see, when we confront, when I confront my fear and I retain my focus, it's really admitting, I need your help, God. Yeah, I'm intelligent. Yes, I'm strong. Maybe I'm mentally strong, physically strong. But there's a lot of things that I just can't do anything about, and they're pulling me down. Question to ask within yourself. Are you there? Do you catch yourself fighting against the truth? And you always seem to end up on the, on the wrong end of it. We're jumping up and down saying, pick me, or we're hiding from the Lord. That we don't want him to pick us. Then all of a sudden, he picks us. All of a sudden, he says, hey, you can do this. You can. I believe in you. I made you for a purpose. And we let it slip by, uh, by us because we're too proud. We don't want to admit it. We just think if we just fake it, we'll make it a little bit longer. And the whole time, we're not making it. Be honest enough. I had to be honest enough against that wall saying, God, I need your help to get out of this bathroom. Okay, I flushed the toilet. Let me out. 
And it's the button that was there. All the time. It was right there. And I panicked. Or I didn't want to cut the line because of my pride. Here's the third one. Getting it now takes them to a place of to have courage and show up. Verses 6 through 11 really he says to them, now you have 300 who drank with their hands. He said, take them with you. Then verse 7, the Lord says to Gideon with these 300, I will rescue you and give you victory. Uh, we're going to pray in just a little bit, and this prayer is really for courage to rescue me, to rescue you. You say, well, man, man, hell, I can make it happen. I'm smart. I'm educated. I'm this. I'm that. When really the whole time it is surrendering to God, all the things you wrestle with or I wrestle with that we wrestle with that we just need to give to God and say, God, please help me. I'm at your mercy. I need your help. And the whole time he loves us. Man, of God, I'm running, I'm running. He just says to us, breathe in. Take it in. Let me fill your life. Let me take full control. Just give it to me. And we catch ourselves in this whole faith crisis. Remember, Philippians 2 says, he who begun a good work in you is going to complete it. God doesn't just leave us off the side. He's completing something. He's doing something behind the scenes, behind the curtains that we can't see, that he's doing something phenomenal for us. And in due time, the Bible says, it's going to come our way. You see, it's those times when our fears are confronted, and we wonder what will happen to our fear next. It's those times when uh, uh, we need help to retain our focus on what God is trying to do within us. And, it makes it, and we can become a little bit careless about it. And we become careless with all that God's given us. And all of a sudden we realize we got ourselves back in debt when God helped us get out. We bought a, a vehicle that God really didn't want us, but we did it anyway. And he still helps us. We get that out of focus. But there's something about stepping up to the plate and having courage and showing up. There's something about we say, God, I need your help. Back in 1989, a long time ago, uh, I was working out at this health club called Bally's. We were there lifting, and I was just there with some guys, and uh, this guy comes up to me and says, hey, Reverend, we're going to a Midwest biggest bench powerlifting contest. Why don't you come join us? I kind of hem-hauled around and said, nah, I'm not really interested. I had never done that before. And they said, well, you've never done it before. You've got to try it sometime. Why don't you just try it with us? So they told me about it. I got the application, sent it in. Pam and I uh, and Jamie, I was in my young 30s. Jamie was eight years old, and uh, we load up. I trained for about 30 days, and so we load up, and we go over to St. Louis. Those other guys who were telling me, why don't you try it, why don't you try it, they didn't come. They didn't send in their money. You know, they didn't show up. <laughs> so I went. I got there. Now this is how it works. It was in an old gym with a, with a platform that had a bench on it. And the rules are you get three lifts, the first lift you have to make, or you can't go to the second lift to ask, add weight to the, to the bench bar that you're lifting. You lay down on the bench, you take the weight off, you press, you bring it back up, the judge claps it, and you're done. There's a judge on the platform with guys that move the weights around, and then there's four judges on the floor that are along on a table. Now it's male and female, about 200 participants. If you ever get asked, unless it's your family member or somebody you love dearly, to come to a powerlifting meet, don't go, because it's very boring. <laughs> they start at 119 or 105, one of those lightweights, and they call the men, the women, the women, the men, all the way up 
And now in those things, they have the 220 class, the 242 class, and the 275. Be it that you wear baggy clothes or whatever, 242 and 275, sometimes 220, you all look about the same size. So here I am with these guys. I'm a heavyweight, and I come in there, and I'm looking around watching these guys. So they started. Pam and Jamie and I sat in mid-audience. Uh, people were getting up there, lifting, change the weights, lift, change the weights. Then I heard a sound that I was waiting to hear. Santos, come to the stage. That's me. So I get up on the stage. They explain to me the rules. I lay down. I take the weight off. I bench it, put it back up. The guy says, good lift. I go back down and sit down. Well, I don't want to hear uh, what's going on because I didn't want to watch all these guys because I seen them one time. I didn't want to watch these guys, so I go outside. And I just hang around outside by myself, talking to myself, walking around, just trying not to get so caught up into that, getting the fresh air. It's about November, December time. They call, they, they, I go back in somewhere where I think it's getting close, and I hear, Santos. I love it when they say this, Santos, come to the platform. So I go up. I do the second lift, boom, and I put it back up. I go back and sit with Jamie and uh, Pam, my wife and daughter, and I say to them, hey, I'm gonna go talk to these guys. So I go over to the judges and I say, the one judge that was there, he had his head down. Now I got my third lift to go. I wanna know, do I need to put five pounds on this, 25 or 75? I think I could probably put about 75 more pounds on this if that's gonna take to beat these guys. Because you see, the first place trophies were this high. Second place was like this. <laughs> I mean, second place is fine if you're racing Hot Wheels, but you're lifting weights. <laughs> and so I said to the guy, I said, sir, I'm Hal Santos. He said, Santos, there was a guy that was saying it. We know who you are. And I said to him, uh, I got a question for you. I've never done this before. And now the other three guys dropped their head down too, so I'm talking to the back of the guy's head. And I said to him, I have a question for you. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this question, but I want to ask you the question, and you tell me whether I'm wrong. I don't want to just get disqualified for asking a question. He said, ask your question, Santos. <laughs> and I said, uh, do I have to lift five pounds, 10 pounds, 50 pounds? What do I have to lift to beat the guy that's ahead of me? Because I want to go home with the big troll. How do I, what do I have to do? He was, went like this. <laughs> He's laughing. The other three guys, I said to him, I said, what's so funny? Did I ask a dumb question? I mean, I've asked ignorant questions before. It doesn't bother me. I just like asking questions. He said, Santos, you won. You're the only heavyweight here. You won. <laughs> then I said to him, thanks. He said, Santos, before you leave. Not only do you win first place, which is this big trophy with a big muscle guy on there, he said, but you also win the novice first place because isn't this the first time you've ever lifted? The percentage of your body and the percentage of what you lifted, you win the novice trophy. I got two trophies. They're this size. <laughs> but I felt a little rejected, so I went over and sat down next to uh, Jamie, Pam, put my head down like this. And I, they, Jamie said, what's wrong, Daddy? I said, well, Jamie, I won. <laughs> she said, you did? That's great. Victory! Like she just came out of the bathroom. You know? <laughs> and, and I said, no, Jamie. <laughs> there was 
There was nobody else in my class. She didn't snicker. Mother did a little bit. People around kind of heard the conversation. They kind of jiggled a little bit. And I said, Jamie, I'm the only one here in my weight class. She put her arm around me, and she said, Daddy, just keep in mind, to win, you just got to show up. You just got to show up. I went home with those two trophies, and I thought to myself, who am I going to tell that I was the only one? But that what I learned from it was this, to be courageous, show up. Sometimes we don't show up to church, or sometimes it's our first time to show up. Some of us, it took courage for us to get here. In fact, I took home those two trophies that are this high. We have a fireplace with a mantle. I put them up on that mantle. After two years, Pam made me take them down. They're in the basement, but I got those two trophies. But it really comes down to, here's the challenge. When you're confronted by, when you're, when you're standing near your kid, jumping up and down, saying, pick me, pick me, when you're trying to do the best, you're confronted by fear, and you look for that button, and you finally find it. Or when you got to just cut the line. You've been carrying that stuff, cut it, cut it off. Get rid of it. Cast it away. Let it go. What it takes is the courage and show up. A lot of people can talk the game, but are you going to show up? I'm going to pray with us. The band's going to come, play a, play a song, worship song, close us in a song. We're going to worship. We're going to receive the offering. But I want to pray for us. Lord, I don't know the folks that come here. A few people I've met, some I know for a long time. But Lord, it's much bigger than that. Some of us wanted to get picked for a certain job, and we got it. Some of us wanted to get picked for a certain job, and we got a different one. Some of us wanted to get picked, and we didn't get it. And then as life went on, we're confronted by our fears. We're conf we have to uh, retain our focus, and we get out of vision of things, and we lose vision, lose mission in life sometimes. Lord, we just got to cut the line. We got to say, I want to be done with that. I've had enough of it. I, I need to move on from here. And I, Lord, I just pray for folks, God, are just saying, Lord, I just want to leave that here. I just want to say, God, it's right here. I want to walk into life saying, hey, this is, this is victory, man. I hit the button. I found out I had to make some decisions. But Lord, it really comes down to the bottom line, male, female, middle age, older, younger, when we come to that understanding that we to be courageous means to step up and to show up, life begins to change. And Father, I ask you just to touch God us in our individual lives. Touch us, but more than that, help us to transition to courageous living in challenging times. In Jesus' name, amen.